What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. Today, I am broadcasting from Nashville, Tennessee. I'm here producing a record for the great Jimmy Hall. And my honored guest today is none other than Joanna Connor, Chicago blues legend and the queen of the blues rock guitar. Welcome, Joanna, my friend. Nice to see you again. Hug. It's nice to see you again. I know. It's like, a, can you believe when we made your record that it was before all the world changed? It doesn't, it seems like it's 20 years ago we made your record, but it's literally 12 months. I know. And I know. can you, we, I mean, we were sitting there in the studio. None of us, including Nostradamus, could have predicted. <laughs> right? Right. You know, I mean, like, like, what have you been up to, you know, during, because, you know, you're a live musician like myself. Yeah. And, and you know, you, you're, you're like known for doing five, six nights a week, five hour sets mm -hmm. to like four o'clock in the morning. That's how I, that's how we, we, we met. And, and that must be a real brick wall for you. Yeah, it's been, it's, I've been an emotional, um, Maniac. It, I mean, it's getting better, but I, I mean, I was in a ball crying at points <laughs> in a fetal position. And it was, it was, first it went from anger to disbelief to depression to, <laughs> okay, I get a chance to rest to, I have to pick up my, it's been everything. It's been, it's been a roller coaster. It's it's like the um what what's those the 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 ten the the ten stages of grief. It's like it's anger, it's depression, then it's acceptance. Mm -hmm. You know, you know one of the things that um, not a lot of people know about you. You were born in Brooklyn, New York, but you were raised in Worcester, Mass. Oh, you said it just perfectly. Worcester, Mass. What do you think? You like you, well now you're in Chicago. You think it's some sort of hot shot? What? <laughs> Tell me. Tell me about it, because, you know, I, I grew up about maybe 200 miles from you, and it's the same yep. kind of, you know, latitude, longitude, mm -hmm. by a degree, same kind of weather. What mm -hmm. is it about the Northeast that produces musicianship? I think it's the weather, because nobody wants to go outside for about eight months. Isn't that the truth? Right. You know what? I think the people, the Northeast is a funny mashup to me, a blue-collar historical immigrant thing and a lot of intellectual centers uh both in arts and just uh, you know academic academia so it's kind of a cool mashup of a lot of things and it produces uh earthy yet uh competent musicians perhaps i don't know because i mean when i grew up there was a ton of music like Worcester, as you say mm -hmm. Wormtown, as the punks would call it um it was pretty blue collar, but it was ten colleges or or eight colleges, at least eight in the town. Right. And you know that's where I my mom worked at Clark University as a secretary in the psych department. As a matter of fact, little known fact, Sigmund Freud came there, and it was the only place he ever lectured in North America was a Clark. Right. But anyway, yeah. So, I would say the music business is ninety percent psych. You know, it's psychological, <laughs> and ten yeah, percent. You know, it's the two C's, you know, it's competent and confidence. I always like competent, competent first and then confident second. Some, some people in our, our, where we grew up, the, the, the confidence is like, oh my God, you know, look at me. I'm like King B and, and they never get out, you know, it's, True. it's, uh, 
what put a guitar in your hands for the first time? Where, where, where was the, where, who was the host for your musical journey? My mom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, there was a, it was, this is a funny story. So when I, I was seven years old and all of my friends were going to the Charlotte Klein dance center, taking ballet and tap and all this. And uh, I was like, mom, I want to do that. Everybody else is doing it. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She kind of ignored me. I was getting upset. And one day I wake up and I still see this scene in my head and she's I walk into the living room and I see this case and she goes oh Joanna you're gonna play the guitar there's no dance lessons and I was like and then I was like okay <laughs> and that's how it started yeah what um what made you gravitate towards blues and in particular the slide because mm. you know I'm a terrible slide player because I have no intonation you you, are you just you just you just Pick off the notes and it's great. Like, like, where where was the leap from? Like, you know, because everybody starts with the basic C chord and the, you know, G and all that Mel Bay stuff. But then there's like the introduction to the blues and then tapping into that emotion and that soul and that fire. Well, first of all, Joe, look, don't even go there with your slide playing. Okay, you're a great slide player. And I pick up it with this mug. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so we'll skip over that segment of that. Um, well, I was just, it, a lot of things that happening musically in the beginning were like happy accidents or, I don't know, destiny or whatever. And so once again, my mom, she was working at Clark. So I played the guitar from like seven to nine classical and whatever, the Carcassi method. I can still see that book. And I was like, yeah, I'm done with this. I want to go out. I want to go out and play stickball and be a kid in the street. I don't want to practice. So I picked it up again in, in like junior high school and I wanted to take lessons. And she's like, oh, a coworker of mine, her husband teaches guitar. And he turned out to be a guy that was a specialist in acoustic blues and particularly slide. Mm -hmm. And, but I had heard slide, I mean slide, I'd heard blues my whole life because of my mom. Cause she right. played a lot of blues, a lot of jazz. Took me to see blues people. I, I wrote about seeing Buddy Guy at like 10 years old um, and, and all the greats, I mean, I think I saw Brownie, uh, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee when I was like nine. And so it was something I'd heard and, and loved and was exposed to. But anyway, so my guitar teacher was named Ron Johnson. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to teach you the slide. And I was kind of familiar with it from some things I heard, but not too, you know, because you don't see it that often. Yeah. Uh, and to, even to this day. So he was the one. He was like a, like a, I call him like the football coach of slide. Come on, Connor. Get it right. You know, he'd be standing over you as a big guy. That's not right. Put you know. And he was a stickler about everything. And I'm I'm real. I mean, I was cool with it. I was like, okay, yeah. That's how it, he got me my technique going. Well, you know, that's a testament to generational differences. Like mm. way we were taught, we were taught by task masters, meaning mm -hmm. somebody would would push you as a child. And mm -hmm. say, come on, come on, Connor, get it right, you know, mm -hmm. or come on, Bonamassa, you're not practicing enough, or whatever. And now it's we live in kind of an era of like, well, hooray for everything, and <laughs> and oh, you, as long as you tried, you know. Yeah. But one of the things you got to have a mentor that shoots you straight, because mm -hmm. if you don't, what happens is you end up just kind of acquiescing to not being your full potential. So, so your guitar teacher was that, that's a, that was, it may not have seemed like that at the time, but it, but it was a 
he was doing you a big favor later in life. He sure was. And and each each like a I don't know like pivotal moments of my development as a player was from a personality like that. But Detroit it is kind of a general generational thing and I mean the only thing I can say in like my kids both played sports and it was definitely like that in sports, but even now they're trying to get away from that. So yeah, you're right. And, right. and it was a, it was a blessing to me, you know. And your your daughter is a, a, from my knowledge, a championship basketball player, correct? Mm -hmm. That must be proud. You must that be proud of her, and, and and you know, because you know, I've been following her journey on your social media. Yeah. And, and she seems like she's doing great and really excelled at that. And and mm -hmm. that must be a real proud moment as as a, as a mom. It's. It, it's the greatest moment. I mean, as as much as I love everything that's happened to me and happening to me, I mean, it's almost like even better, you know. So, was, was there ever a time when you're raising your kids, like like one of them grabbed the guitar and like, hey, this maybe I'll go in the family business, and you're like, no, get the hell away from me. poison, poison. Don't you <laughs> say no, it's poison. I love that. Well, you know what? I expose them. They both played instruments. My son was a drummer till he got into high school. And I mean, he was an athlete too. And he's like, well, I'm playing three sports. I can't really play drums anymore. So he quit playing drums. And um, my daughter played like seven instruments. I kept feeding. She was like, I want to try this. Okay, I want to try And then she got into junior high school. And she's like, mom, the last thing she did was sing. And of course, she goes, I, I really like sports more. I'm not going to. Like they knew that if they were going to play an instrument, they had to practice. I didn't force it on them, but they knew that was part of the deal. And they were honest with me. They're like, yeah, this isn't our thing. And it's funny. My daughter could play the guitar. Like she has those long, thin fingers. She could play pretty quickly. And my son, I, I walked by his room one day. He picked up one of my guitars. He's playing the chord. He flips it and plays with the other hand. And I'm like, what did you just do? Right. He goes, well, it's a big deal. I'm a point guard. I'm like, no, it's a little different. So they had that in them, but it wasn't. It didn't capture them like it did me. Although forward, now my son is into music again for the last 10 years, but it's hip hop, so it's completely different, but no guitar players. But you're right, I was I was kind of like relieved. Like, <laughs> I, I wouldn't ever push that on my kid. You First of all, I, I feel like this expose your kids to everything. I mean, and I did, you know, theater, I, but, but let them gravitate to what that speaks to them and then you support it, you know? So that was always my philosophy. I, I don't know, sometimes I think, should I have been tiger mom? And, Sit down and do this, you know. But my thing was, you have to do something. You can't just be a kid that goes to school and come home and watches television. I said, pick some hobby because I feel like it's important. And they and they were always because you're both natural athletes. They would never want to sit on their butts anyway. So yeah, that, you know the thing about you know like one of the commonly asked questions about my upbringing is like, well, like were your parents really hard on you and and you make you practice? I'm like no, there's this. When most professional musicians, when you get into their journey, it's basically this. They're introduced to it, they take to it, and then it creates its own atmosphere and inertia. And exactly. then you can't then then you can't discourage it because they're gonna go, No, I'm doing this, I don't care what you say. But I got exactly. you to Harvard, Billy. You got to Harvard. <laughs> you got to Harvard. No, I wanna be I wanna be a musician and I wanna make no money. <laughs> Well, that's what scared my son away from music, because he, he did love music, and he was talented. But he looked at me and goes, Ma, I want to be a businessman. I want to wear a tie. I want to go downtown again. And he goes, I want money. And I'm like, 
And even though I kind of knew that wasn't really his personality, it, it scared him to watch what, you know, I would go through for art. And now he's an artist going through that. He's like, after he went to corporate America, whatever, he's like, I can't do this. And I'm losing my soul out here. Right. That was his journey, you know. That's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a delicate balance. Tell me about your, your, your adventure from Worcester, Mass, to Chicago. Because you're the queen of Chicago blues rock. That's what the internet says. <laughs> it's got to be true. It's got to be true. You know, I forgot my crown today, too. How did you, how did you, how did you, because obviously that must have been a conscious decision. I want to go to Chicago. I want to hang with the greats. And, and you did. You know, mm-hmm. you made that happen. When was that? Well, I, I was in a band back home uh, called the Pino Connor Band. And it, actually, it was a guy named Pino. He played harmonica. And he was like, a, he was right there neck and neck with like James Montgomery and the Jake Isles band. He was yeah. older than me. They were all like right there. So his brother played guitar, Ken Pino, who also played with Johnny Copeland later on. So we had a decent little band. So him and I said, you know, let's go. Let's get in the van and drive cross country because my grandparents lived in California. And we're like, let's stop in Chicago because we love Chicago blues. Everybody's like, oh, nothing's going on there. You should go to Austin. We're like, man, we're going to go to Chicago. So I was like 19 and got into the clubs. Right. I was, I fell in love. It was it was like Disney World. It was everything I imagined and more. And so in my mind, I'm like, you know, I had my band back home. Things were nice. I was the big fish in the small pond kind of thing. I was like, I don't want to live in Chicago. I, I have to go there. So at 22, I did. You know, I told everybody goodbye. Most people thought I was crazy. And I literally got my twin reverb, my Les Paul in a suitcase, and got on the Greyhound bus and went to Chicago. That's a very blues journey. You know, because the thing is, like, you know, about the East Coast, there's a great, the, the, when, I, when I was coming up, there was, like, to me, one of the great blues scenes in the country was mm-hmm. the East Coast. You got guys like Jerry Portnoy, Duke mm-hmm. Goldbard, Ronnie Earl, James Montgomery, mm-hmm. um, Room Full of Blues. Mm-hmm. And they were all working the I-95, North and South, the Thruway, you know. Yeah. But... You know, it to me, it's like when I moved to New York. I was told the same thing: you're crazy. You're gonna be, you're gonna be broke in three months. I said, no, I have four months to like, <laughs> really get broke. You know, I saved up the, for four months. Oh, there you go. So when you when you when you got to Chicago, how did you like? Okay, you're 22 years old. You got a twin, a Les Paul, and a dream. How did you start? You know, because you were hanging with guys like James Cotton. Junior Wells, Buddy, AC Reed, all these cats that, you know, they must have saw something in you that was a talent and that was a spark because there was a, in Chicago there's a lot of musicians, you know, but you stood out. How, how did how did that begin for you? Sorry about the dog. Since my this is my new family here. Um how did it begin? Well well, one good thing was I did have a distant cousin that hooked me up in an apartment. So that's like there's the basic thing. And then the first night I got there, I went out to the Kingston Mines and blues was across the street. So I just started networking. And um, but what was a breakthrough for me was like maybe I was in town for a couple of weeks. I went to see Lonnie Brooks on a Tuesday night at blues. Right. And I'm sitting there just, you know, laser focused on him and Dion Payton who was his rhythm guitar player, just like taking it in. And, and Lonnie comes up to me and he's kind of looking at me quizzically like, oh, hi, I'm Lonnie Brooks. And like, you know, what's your name? And my, my accent was much thicker than he's like, you're not from here. And what are you doing here? Are you visiting? I'm like, no, I'm here to play blues. And he looks at me like, <laughs> I can still see his face. He's like, really? He's like, yeah, I, I, I'm learning to play blues guitar. And he's like, 
hmm. He goes, come here. And he brings me up and he had that SG, that lovely. He goes, play something for me. So I played some whatever. Right. Part of a pentatonic scale probably. And he's like, okay, I want you to sit in. I was just like, whoa. He goes, don't, don't tell Dion. That's Dion, my rhythm guitar boy. Tell him you're going to open the show with him. So I said, hey, by the way, Dion looks at me and he's like, no, nah, no, you're not. And I was like, <laughs> I went to back to my seat and then I got a couple Jack Daniels and I was like, oh, the hell with this. I'm, I walked up to him, he's this big tall. I said, you know what, Lonnie said I could sit in and, and, and uh, you know, I really want to do that. And if he thinks it's okay. And so he's looking at me, he goes, well, play something for me. Same thing. He had his last pawn in his, and he just nods his head. And I went and sat down. He called me up. We jammed three songs. Place went crazy. And things just started to roll from there. You know, because I was a, a younger woman from out of town playing guitar. Right. And playing lead. And, and I had a good sense of rhythm. And it was pretty unusual. So that's how it all started. There's always that moment of confidence that, that is required. Because mm -hmm. you'll be tested. You know, yes. mine, I, I was 11 years old oh. and it was in Hamilton, New York. And I was just a little kid. My dad brought me to this blues festival and I sat in with the Cold Shot Blues Band. which was, They were from Syracuse. And the promoter's like, hey, you should sit in with James Cotton, but he's not here yet. I'm like, OK. And wow. so the promoter goes up to James and says, hey, listen, they've got this kid. And he's like, it's same deal. He's like, no. I, I, I want to go, you know, relate, you know. And he goes, no, no, no. And then he goes, let me meet him. And I, and I went, went back into the kitchen because it rained that day and they moved the whole event inside. And um, James is sitting there eating a cup, like a styrofoam cup full of chili. <laughs> and, and, and he goes, so I hear you can play. I'm like, yeah, I think I can play, you know. <laughs> Did you want to, can you handle it? I'm like, yeah, I think I can handle it. And there I was in the, I sat in the front row. My parents look at the pictures of me. I'm just like, like that. <laughs> and he called me up and, and that was the introduction. Wow. That was like, that gave me, you know, and I, I'm forever grateful to James Cotton for, uh -huh. for, for giving me that opportunity. But, but more importantly, giving me the confidence to come, I can hang with these guys. I'm not, a, I'm, I'm a student, but I can hang, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? I'm not going to embarrass them or myself, you mm -hmm. know, most importantly them. And when you're, when you're gigging in Chicago and you're, you're around all those guys and legends and, and people who are, you know, changed the world, you know, how much does that seep into your pores as far as your writing and your and your and your playing? And do you still have that chip on your shoulder where you go, hey, listen, I gotta be noticed here? You know? Oh yeah. I still have that chip. I mean, even recently at the mines, I see this every night. You know, I'm up there on the stage or whatever, plug it in, I haven't played enough, and I see some somebody at home with the arms folded like the head tilted like, what is this? You know? Right. So like, ah, here we go again every night. <laughs> right. So it never goes away until you become a household name. And even then, then you got a whole nother set of circumstances. But uh, yes, no, but it, it did soak in my pores. I mean, first of all, the hours and hours and nights and nights and years and years and all the different people and all the different circumstances. Um, I mean, the first few years, I... I sang a little bit to open the show, but I was backing people up, which I loved, you know, that was, you know, and I'd have, you know, Billy Branch would be up there, hey, don't, don't play that, play this, you know, Sugar Blue, and just different 
women, you know, sing Barbara Shore, Big Time Sarah, whatever. So it did. And, and, I, and, I, and I always wanted to learn as much as I could from everybody. You know, I mean, I had a good feel. One of the things I think I did is I had a good feel for rhythm, you know, how to play the rhythm. And people enjoyed that. And I was very focused on whoever I backed up, you know. So they appreciated that. And then, like, the other stuff, like learning to be better on lead. And, you know, I developed my slide technique from just throwing the slide on and playing. Wasn't like, oh, let me get my slide guitar out now and tune to G and right. you know, one guitar go and and um, so yeah, it's a foundation for everything and you know, and all the tremendous musicians. I mean, a lot of them came from gospel, like now especially they're from the church, and that's right. the most most tremendous musicians still. And so, you yeah. know, I just interviewed Robert Randolph, and mm. he was telling me about Sacred Steel and how mm-hmm. the slide is. The slide is the lead instrument in the church. Wow. And and you know you know his his church I think it's the, the Church of God or Holy Church of God or something like that. And um, I'm probably wrong about that, but uh, I do a lot of these. <laughs> Sounds you know, good. I have my notes. But um, you know, the rhythm guitar and the organ is is. Is secondary secondary the pedal steel or the steel is you know so that whole thing about the slide crossfading into the blues makes a lot of sense to me mm-hmm. you know you know knowing robert for as long as i have and 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 you know you know the campbell brothers and all those those, those kind of acts and mm-hmm. and you know it it, it, it kind of crossfades it's the you know there's always a gospel version of a blues song there's always a blues version of a gospel song 100%. so true tell me about um, your new record. Um, it's called 4801 South Indiana Avenue. Two questions. Where does the demon come from? <laughs> and how do you summon it? <laughs> I'm not giving away that secret. Because right. you're the sweetest person I've ever met. But there's a demon. <laughs> because I've seen it. I've produced it. And, 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 uh, but there's a fire and a brimstone <clears throat> deep in here that comes out when you have, when you're in a situation and you're like, I'm going to show them. Where does yeah. that- you know what? It's, it's always been in there that little, I, you know, when I was growing up as a, as a girl in the seventies and in the late sixties, there were women were so, and girls were so restricted to social norms, you know? And I, and I looked at it like, I love sports. I love music. And, you know, I loved being outside, climbing trees. It was like that was a tomboy. That, it wasn't even, like, a good thing to be doing, you know? Right. And I was like, damn, guys get to have all the fun, you know? Right. Like, I don't want to sit around. Yeah, Barbies are cool, but, you know, whatever. And that kind of, like, instilled something in me. Like, you know what? I want to pursue things that make me happy. And one of them was music. So I always felt like, and I was just like, I want to be as good as the guys. I want to be accepted. I don't want to be... You know, playing, I mean, nothing against all female bands or whatever, but let's face it, most of the top musicians are men and they still are. I mean, especially back then. And I wanted to be able to hang with the guys. And if you're going to hang with the guys, you know, you got to bring it. And if you're going to hang in Chicago with the blues legends, you really better bring it. So I don't know. It's just part of my personality. I don't know if it's in my DNA or whatever it is, but, um, you know, like I'm pretty easygoing and nice, but don't get me mad. Because that I'm, demon will come out. <laughs> I tried a couple of times. So from this video, I saw it and I watched it about 10 times. And a little light bulb. I'm not very bright, but every once in a while, 
every once in a while, you know, I, I, there's at least nine to 12 volts that, that <laughs> travel up there and, I, and it just dim antique light bulb goes on. And I said, if she can summon that for 10 songs, this will be a winner. Mm -hmm. And I contacted you and, and we made a record, 4801 South Indiana Avenue. And it's basically an homage to your time in Chicago and it's a it's a it's a, a group of songs from Chicago blues legends or you know and one that Josh wrote and Josh Smith being our co-producer on this and tell me what it was like to be in the studio having a taskmaster I apologized after the fact but be trying to laser focus on this on summoning this demon and this energy in a sustained recording well for one thing and i don't want to i don't want to blow up your ego here buddy but <laughs> it's already it's already massive i have chips on both shoulders i told you okay good good um no um seriously i mean i worked with jim gaines great producer legendary guy stevie ray Vaughan, santana you whatever um and i you know blind pig they had their producing thing going on and um whatever but having you really steer the ship you set you set the parameters you got you got the best musicians that could really kick you and josh because i know josh yeah. brought along the rhythm section i mean everybody was top notch you told you laid it on the table You're like we're going to get in there what you kick ass if it's more than three takes we're going to move on and you right. set us up pretty much like a live situation in one room you were the only one not in the room right. in the control room because you had to be and it was live it was natural and you just really, um, your t plan of attack worked. And then, you know, that was for the playing part. And, you know, you give me some hints like, hey, go out, you know, think of it this way. I want you to play really rough on this or, you know, but you gave me the freedom to be me. But the vocal part, that was the, that was the challenge. I mean, you probably want to ask me questions about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did I, so yeah, did I answer the question? <laughs> you did, you did. And, yeah. You know, one of the things is when we first started cutting vocals for your album, you would have these lines, these moment of truth lines. Like, I'm like, that's it. Mm -hmm. That's it. And once the week progressed, you started to realize, like, th like to me, there's the same fire and energy that's in your playing is in your vocal and your delivery. And, and all of a sudden, there's like this Sid Vicious punk rock blues singer coming out and one of the things i'm the most proud of because i knew it was there to begin with and i didn't do any magic it was just encouraging you to step out of something you've been doing for a long time and try something different because at the end of the day there's always the erase button if it's not good we won't release it you know right and i think a lot of musicians get into a studio and they get intimidated i'm like oh my god it's like if i if, if i just play it safe It'll sound okay on the record, but you, you reached the max of your, your, your voice was shot by the end, but, and, and, you know, but rightfully so, because you, you dug deep and you made a killer Chicago blues record. We didn't really have a lot to do with it. We just, we just put the, the situation around you and you flourish. And I, and I honestly, I keep saying this to you and I text you every once in a while or I call you or whatever. And I say, I just, I'm so proud of you for, for what you, what you've done. And, and, and because 
there's that great artist that everybody knew you were is now on this record. And tell me the significance of the of the title, 4801 South Indiana Avenue. That's in Chicago, not in Indiana, folks. No, not in Indiana at all. Well, I mean, as if I can recall correctly, we're pretty much finished up with the record, or we're about to be. And you were like, what, what about a title? And we were kind of standing there, and, and you, I think you said something like, what are some of the places, you know, the legendary places that you played and whatever? And we and it says, what were the addresses? This is your brainchild. And I looked it up that on my light's phone. Light still flickering in before your it nine volt blows was working. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it just made sense. And it was um, well, it's, and, and our first track, destination. It's a destination. You have that address. We're paying tribute. Right. We're like we're conjuring up the sound. But I, I think what really and I don't want to get on Blues Paris because, well, they hate me anyway, but they might like me now. But, you know. They hate you. They, they burn me in effigy then. Jeez. <laughs> they hate you. Oh, my God. I'm going to see you behind my back. Eesh. Well, so some of them make wonderful records and whatever, but it's sterile. It's it's like this museum. Like, we can't we can't do this. We can't. It's like, and, and you can feel it and hear it, you know. Um, and then you get the other end where it's like, and I've done this overly produced. It's it's too slick. It's too polished. It's losing some of that light. So I think what we really, we really hit on was we had the tradition, but it was it was us now doing it to the max with passion, with feel. And that's what the old guys did. They weren't in there. They were being themselves. I mean, that's what made it so incredible. Right. And we were being ourselves. And I, I love the record. You know, and, and it's funny because, you know, just as a fan and as a music listener, I was I was in a I was in a place the other day in Nashville and, and um, I was just replying to some emails and they were playing some music and they were playing all Freddie King. Mm. And what I didn't realize, because it, like it was the entire Freddie King count, mm. how many songs that like bb would do freddie would do albert would do like someday after a while bb did a version mm -hmm. you know like you know john may on the blues breaker would do it freddie king blah, blah, blah. and the, the, these songs have been around for so long but to be honest with you everybody's done a version of them and put their own stamp on it in a different way so mm -hmm. there's you no know, there's versions you prefer and versions that you don't prefer, but but there's really no rule book when it, you just, you got a structure and a lyric and let's go. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. what I loved about the blues to begin with. And I was too young to put a, a label on it or, or really totally understand, but I, I felt the honesty and the passion and the realness that came through it. Right. And that's what really appealed to me. I, I like real. And, and that is when it's played like that, like you said, with your stamp, with your personality, with your spirit. Well, it was, it was played with bad intentions. And, <laughs> you know, and, and one of the things um, I wanted to ask you is, like, who are your top three slide influences? Like, who, who, who are your who, who are the who, who are the who are the players for you? Well, there's a lot of them. I mean, I don't play like any of them per se, although I, I get the comparison most to Johnny Winter. Okay. Yeah, that, that, uh, that's what people usually compare me to. But I, I was really cutting my teeth on Ry Cooter mm -hmm. uh, because of my teacher. 
mostly technique wise and feel, even though I don't play, you know, you hear my records and Ryan Cooter's records, like, well, I don't see it, but um, Ryan Cooter, Lowell George, loved right. him, Elmore James, I mean, the Allman Brothers, right? Robert Johnson, Bonnie Ray, it goes on and on. I don't have a, you know, Jimmy Page did some stuff. Yeah. Um, but I would say probably Lowell George, Ry Cooter, and right. And then Muddy Waters. I don't know. It's hard to say. Muddy had a great way of playing slide. He it was did. so definitive. It was mm-hmm. like, it was just, you could, you know, he's, he to me was the BB King of slide. He mm-hmm. played one note on it and you, oh, it's Muddy. You know what yep. I mean? It's like, and, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of that's not learned. You can't teach that. You just no. feel it and it's, and it's, and it's there. And it's like, I'm interested to 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 know your process when you put a set together, like for a show. Um, what 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 do you what are you looking to achieve, like on a festival? Like, what's what's your goal there? Well, uh, festivals are my favorite thing to play because you know you can just compress everything <laughs> into an hour, ninety minutes, or whatever, compared to five hours. Right. You know, so it's a different thought process. I mean. What I want to do is you know, I want to take any, everyone on a ride. I want to bring them joy. I want them to, to feel it and to dance. I want to get them between the eyes. You right. know, I, want, I want to bring them everything. I want to have a little tenderness, uh, sort of the whole gamut. You know, it's, it's kind of, with me, it's emotion and, and rhythm. It's kind of like the two things. Right. You know? What do you miss most about playing live? <laughs> I miss my band. Right. I have a really good band. I, I miss our our little jaunts into all kinds of things that we do all night together. It's like a big conversation, and it's a lot of fun. And, of course, I miss the audience. I, I mean, I could play with my band now, but we're, we're like rehearsing all the time. I, I do miss the, I miss the energy from the, the, you know, the reciprocal energy. I always felt like it was a, a big circle. We give the energy, they give it back. We give the energy, and it and it's inspiring. And it, I mean, that's what hooked me about playing music. Even when I was a kid playing the saxophone, I love the group feeling of the other musicians. And then when there was an audience, it made it even better. It's more, it's more expansive. So that's what I miss. You know, that's when I read articles about like the new normal. Everybody's like the new normal. Uh, you know, like you know, the, well, these live stream things are working, and it and it could be a new model for musicians. Those those articles are written by people who've never played on stage. I agree. They don't realize that audience is almost thirty to forty percent of. They're part of the band, whether they like. Yeah, it or not. they are. I agree. You know, you could have a bad audience, and or there's no bad audiences, but just a quiet audience. Mm-hmm. You know, and and it's like and it, and the energy of the band is down because no matter how hard you try, you just like, come on. It's yeah. Not that hard. Clap. You are so right. But if they're on fire, you're on fire. And those yep. are the special nights, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and um, how do you judge? How do you judge your gigs? Is it by crowd reaction or or music? Because sometimes they're not mutually exclusive. Like like you 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 be like I've had nights where I'm, I feel like I, I owe everybody a refund, and they'll come up and say, "Man, you were on fire!" And I'm like I'm like you were not at this show, okay? Right. You know, you, th- th- this was clams everywhere. But <laughs> and then there's nights where I go, wow, we were, we were hitting the mark tonight. You know, like totally. 
good on us. You know, we had ourselves in the yeah. back. Whatever. Okay. And then the audience goes, that's flat. You were guys, <laughs> I, I've seen better. I'm like, weren't you, how do you judge that? I don't know. You know, it's funny. I, I, it's, this is what people come up to me, like Sam setting up like, so you're feeling good? You're going to have a good show tonight? And I can honestly say, I have no clue. Right. It's magic. And when, it, and when I start playing, it just starts to happen. And I can never predict. Right. I can never predict, you know. Um, and it, to this day, I can't figure it out. I can't even figure out why some audiences are just, like you say, sitting there. It's like this group psychology thing that goes on. Like, oh, is it the moon? Is it the area? Is I don't know. You know, you just don't know. And it really is mass psychology. But I feel like it's like it's some kind of vibrational thing. Not to sound like, you know, I'm taking LSD or something. Yeah, where's your <laughs> crystals? Where, where, are the, where are the crystals in the... I know, I don't have any of that. You're correct. I know everything that I, I, I when, when, the, when the lights go out and the, and the intro tape rolls, mm-hmm. that initial reaction, I go, that tells me everything I need to know about how hard it's going to be or not. Because right? there's sometimes like the lights go out and the place is just great and you walk out and it's slamming from first note to, to the end. And then all of a sudden, you know, the same, the, the next night, the lights go out and you go, man, it was so, so great last night. And I was like, yeah. And you're like, what's the difference between Thursday and Friday? You know, I don't get it. It is, it is a, it is a, it is a collective thing. It is. Um, then, tell me what you've been doing to keep busy during the COVID, the, the, the old, the, 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 the cove months. The cove months. Man, I'm like, does really, does life have to be this dramatic? I don't know. Um, right. I've been teaching. I'm getting a lot of students, so I didn't. I couldn't figure out what to do for a while. Right. Um. So I I went and worked at Trader Joe's for a while, and then right. which was great. It was a great workout. Um, you told me nice you lost weight. You told me you lost weight from the experience. I did, but then I think I put it back on. But I'm I'm, I'm always on that roller coaster too. Yeah. But um, it got the COVID got really bad here. Like Chicago right. was the epicenter. I'm like, hey, I think. Being around 600 people a week may not be a good thing, you know? So I quit, but I've been teaching. I've been teaching. I mean, I can't say I've been writing a lot of songs. Um, I have been, I've been exploring some new ideas on the guitar. Um, Mm -hmm. I've been watching a lot of music documentaries Mm -hmm. and that's been fun. So yeah, that's, it's pretty, pretty quiet. I've been sleeping a lot, which I haven't done in like three decades. So right. I get eight hours of sleep at night. It's incredible. <laughs> you know, I, I, I find the music documentaries depressing because I go, I used to do that. Right, I know. That used to be me. It's, yeah. it's, it's definitely like the other, when we had our historical crazy event last week or whatever that was, I was so depressed and upset. And I was like, I really need to get on stage and let this go. Because it, I feel like as a musician, like you say, in front of a crowd, it, it's very cathartic, and it's and, and when you don't have that, it's yeah, there's something really lacking for me in that sense of release, you know. It is a release. It yeah. really is a release. Um, how important, you know, I, I, as far as politically, my my stage persona and everything, I'm pretty agnostic because I don't I don't really get involved in that. Mm-hmm. Because that's my stage persona, and that's the, that's the other guy, and the other guy is agnostic. You know, I have my own personal 
views about what goes on and how messed up everything is at the moment. But how important, like, is it when you when you're talking about like you know some artists are very politically motivated, some have pivoted to be very politically motivated. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not sure how that's going to work. You know how that works either way. Um, where do you where do you land on that on that position? Like, do you do you, do you overtly go and like listen? These are my positions. Take it or leave it. Or do you just keep that to yourself? Because again, it's a personal choice, and it's a personal. These are. You, you know, not everybody's going to agree with you, but especially now it's so hyper, oh. hyper inflated and, and, and partisan. That's a good word. Oh, it is a good word. Um, oh, boy. So in 2016, when um, Bernie was in the race, I was really passionately supporting him and canvassing. And I was very vocal about everything because I felt like I hadn't seen a candidate like that in my lifetime, you know, that I really believed in and really um, motivated me. Uh, for change. And also, like, people, when some of the things happen in Ferguson, and, and people are like, oh, oh, they deserve it, whatever. And I would argue, like, no, I get to tell you these experiences I've had because of this, that, and other. So I was really into it, thinking I could, if I could just change one person's mind. And after that, all that, or maybe a year of that, I was like, you know what, I, I just can't do this. You know, I, I'm going to just... And every now and then, if something's really, really intense, I'll say something because I feel like I have to. But I kind of stepped back off the soapbox because it's like, yeah, maybe. And and what really kind of upset me, they would be like, just play your music. Just shut up and play your guitar. I'd get messages like that, which pissed me off. It's like, no, I'm a human and I have a right to speak my mind. I wasn't like swearing at people and being evil and, you know, attacking people. But I was speaking what I felt. Um, at this point, I mean, I've done some politically uh, tinged, lyrical, lyrically wise songs. Right. I don't know what I just said, but yeah, um, I don't know. I, I don't. I feel like I go with my gut. If I feel like I should step up and say something, I do. If not, I'll step back and let people work it out. Like I think this, there's a this just is one good thing I could take from all that's happened. I mean, whatever you think of our president that's leaving now. He did expose a lot of things. He he uncovered things that have been brewing. Mm-hmm. He enabled people that always felt the way they felt. This isn't like he he didn't create a new uh, paradigm. These things existed. So he Under was the a surface. Uh, yes. Yeah. This, these, sure. He was in a way that it's. I think before we heal as a nation, we have to all say, you know what, this is bad, and this needs to be recognized, and we shouldn't have done this. So what can we do in the future? to make things better. Now we've got a long way to go. I mean, like one thing was too, in 2016, my daughter was playing at Indiana State University in Terre Haute, Indiana, which, you know, at one time was a booming place. And I think they, they do K-Tel, I don't know, they had all these things going on. And then it's like, now it looks like Appalachia and no dist Appalachia. It looks, it's economically devastated, most of it. And I would meet people and they were sweet as pine. They're like, we, we need Donald Trump because Washington has turned their back on it. So I get it. Everybody that voted for him wasn't a racist or whatever. But as things went on, we saw things that we shouldn't have saw. So, I mean, I don't know. It made me sympathetic to, I mean, there's just a million stories in our country. What makes our country amazing is its diversity of, yes. in every way. I mean, you go state to state, it's like a new country. So for yeah. all of us to get on one page, it's never going to be easy. No. So, no, and, and and I you know I 
I understood the 2016 election because it harkens back to growing up in upstate New York. It's the same thing. Former military industrial complex hub. Everybody had jobs. The city mm -hmm. was, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. The city was booming. City mm -hmm. was booming. There was 150,000, 200,000 people living there. To, you know, the 2000 census comes out, it's 45,000. And the place looks like it's, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's been used as a, a you know, the, the buildings are crumbling and yeah. abandoned. And, and I understand people like, like my parents age that, that felt like that. And I stopped engaging it because, because like yourself, I was getting the old, oh, just shut up and play. Yeah. And then I would go down the rabbit hole who, who said that to me. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, and you go down there, it's like Rich Thompson, Des Moines' most in-demand plumber. I go, you're a fucking plumber. <laughs> okay? Shut up and fix the pipes. You know, it's like, it's the same logic. What, what, you've never traveled. You know? Right, like, right. You know, and, it, and, and I was like, pop, pop, pop. I'm out. I'm out. I keep my... Yeah. You know, you know how I say, I, I, I tell you how I, I express my political opinions? I vote. Yeah, I there the you button. go. Bottom I couldn't line. hit the button this time. I had to use a, a bottom a, line, yeah. A sanitized fob. <laughs> but anyway, you know, one of the things that I admire most about you is, is you have such a great outlook on life and your and and your and your just the queen of positivity. But but you're also you you also like, you know, hit them between the eyes with the slide and and, and you know, you you have it all. And I think you're a superstar. And, and your album's coming out. When is your album coming out? I, I should know this because uh, February twenty sixth is the official date. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm like I said, what I'm most proud of in my musical life is just was just me poking you a little bit to 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 come out of your shell. And I just hope everybody really enjoys the record as much as I enjoyed helping you make it because. I was such a, you know, I was just, again, I just, I just hit record and you did it all. And, and, and I think you're a superstar. Joanna, you're, you're, you're Thank one you. of my favorite people in, in, you know, in this, in this world. And, and um, I think 2021 is going to be a big year for you. I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm making it, I'm, I'm Nostradamus. I'm making it. <laughs> so thank you for being thank on our show. Joe. Ladies and gentlemen, the great, the legendary, the queen of the blues rock guitar, according to the internets and according to Joe Bonamassa, Miss Joanna Connor. Thank you very much for being here. Love you, Joe. I love you, too. This has been another wonderful episode of Live from Nerdville.